All right, well, let's, um, let's pray, and, and we're going to dive into Exodus 19 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing here among us through your word, through your people, by the power of your spirit. Father, I pray you would open our hearts to, to want to surrender and submit to come underneath you and your authority, your loving, gracious authority in our lives. And so may that not be something that's fearful, but may that be um, by faith something we see as a joy, knowing that you are our Father and that you love to tell us what is best for us and that we trust you by faith. Lord, may that be who we are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that some people in our world today struggle with in a profound way, men, um, mainly women, I think in my experience, but men as well, is uh, eating disorders. Eating disorders. It's tragically common in our world today. And, and sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it can be hidden. So if you're talking to a young woman who, let's say, is five foot ten and 80 pounds, and she says to you, I feel so obese. I can't believe that I am such an obese person. And you say to her, sweetheart, you are not obese at all. And I'm really concerned for you that, that your sense of identity as an obese person is, is actually harming you and threatening your health. But she says, but I am obese. It's just how I feel. There's nothing you can do to, to change my mind. So what would you say? What would you say? You see, see what's going on here is she's defining her identity by her feelings. So how could you or I help this person see the truth of who she is? And most importantly, based on what authority would you seek to change her mind to help her find a true, healthy identity that's not primarily obesity? So is it, is it just your opinion versus hers? Is that what we're kind of reduced to? So hold this thought for a second, okay? And we're going to come back to this. If you have a Bible, look at Exodus 19. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, the section that we're looking at in Exodus 19, it marks a, a huge transition, kind of a, a pivot, a, a corner turn in the whole book of Exodus. Now, up to this point, if you've been tracking with us, we've seen from chapter 1 to chapter 18 the story of redemption. What does that mean? The story of how God has saved his people, okay? So the big theme has been God takes his people, removes them from the hand of slavery, Pharaoh in Egypt. Red Sea parts, they go through, waters of judgment come down, enemies defeated, God's people go free, saved from slavery. And they're saved also from hunger, from thirst, We've seen that recently, right, in the wilderness. 
and also saved from enemies. The Amalekites wanted to come and kill them, and God saves them. And he doesn't save them because they're so awesome. It's never a like, oh, God, I'm looking down at these people, and, and, and God, from my perspective, I look down and I see these people that have it all together, and so because they have it all together, I'm going to save them. That's not what the Bible says at all. It just says it's sheer sovereign mercy. God just doing whatever he wants because he can, because he's God. He doesn't have to always give reasons. He just says, I'm going to, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to choose you, and from you I'm going to make this huge people that I'm going to create for my glory. It just simply is. We don't have a why, just an is, okay? So he chooses these people, and he saves them, okay? And now we learn about this corner that's about to turn. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so look at verse 1, that, that language of the third moon and stuff. All that means is they've been in the wilderness for about seven weeks now. So since the exodus, water's part, dramatic story, enemies judged, Israel saved. It's been about seven weeks they've been in the wilderness. And like we said, they, they faced all these trials in the wilderness. And they reached this point near Mount Sinai. And the, and the Bible says here, what we just read, is they kind of set up shop right at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay? And God tells Moses, I want you to come up and I'm going to meet you on this mountain and I'm going to talk to you. So it's going to be conversation between God and Moses. People camp down at the base of the mountain. Got it? That's kind of the picture, okay? And God says to Moses, I want to communicate some very important things to my people. And here's the deal. What he's going to communicate is going to form the next 10 weeks of our preaching here at the Vine. Starting next, next week, a 10-week series. But before this huge conversation that God's going to have with Moses, that Moses is then going to have with the people, that's going to shape everything for God's people, God has to do something very important. He's got to lay the groundwork. He's got to lay the foundation. And verse 4 here is extremely key. Verse 4 here is very, very important. Let's look at it again. I thought I was going to preach through the whole kind of chapter 19, but I got into this and looking at 4, 5, and 6, and I just discovered we got to camp out right here at 4, 5, and 6, okay? So let's look at it again, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God talking to Moses, and, and, and God tells Moses that you're going to say this to the people. So it's essentially God is speaking to all of his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's making a factual statement here. Did you see what God's doing here in this factual statement? 
So here's, here's a 30,000-foot view of Exodus that's really helpful for us to know. In the whole rest of the book of Exodus, God is turning from the story of salvation, 1 through 18, to what God's people are called to do now in light of their salvation. Okay? How they're called to live in light of their salvation. But the order here is very, very important. It's not due to get salvation. No, it's salvation and then we do, right? Here's the deal. God's people have shown over and over and over and over again, maybe you can relate, how forgetful they are. And what's the nature of their forgetfulness? They forget who they are. They forget who they are. We forget who we are. And so what is God doing here in verse 4 before he launches into all this important stuff about what they're supposed to do? He wants to remind them who they are. He wants every single Israelite camped out at the base of Mount Sinai to never forget who they are. So if you stop an Israelite on the street and ask them, who are you? What's your knee-jerk response? What's it going to be? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? He wants their response to be verse 4. Okay? Summary of verse 4 would be, Israelite says, I am saved by God's sheer mercy alone, and I've been brought to God because he's chosen to love me. See how that's just a, another way of saying verse 4? Let me say it again. I'm saved by God's sheer mercy alone, and, I've been, and I have been brought to God because he's chosen to love me. This is who they are. This is the primary expression of their identity. And out of who they are is going to flow some very important things for them to do, okay? So before we get to that, we have to pound this biblical theme into our brains. You with me? Here it is. Super important. Being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. Doing doesn't produce our being. Our being produces our doing. Okay, so what does that mean? Just said differently, if you want to please God with your life, you have to know who you are. Not who you're trying to be or striving to be, but who you are in Christ. So think back to the original illustration. The tragedy of someone who defines themselves primarily by their external appearance, it's hard for that person to live a life that's, that's internally satisfying, at peace, and pleasing to God because at, at its core, they're believing a lie about who they are. The answer to the question, who are you, for them primarily is, I am an obese person. But that's not how God ever defines who his people are. That's not God's answer to that question. So if you're an Israelite at the base of the mountain, or someone, somebody struggling with anorexia, or any other issue in all of our lives, if you want to follow God and honor him in word and deed, you have to have settled in your mind what God says about you. So what's most important here is this. 
God's people, verse 4, God's people are who God says they are. We are who God says we are. It's very important to think of the negative is this. It's not based on our feelings, but it's based on God's revealed word. See, see an, an Israelite is not allowed to say, according to verse 4, I'm, I'm feeling like God is against me today, so God must be against me today. I am feeling like a failure today, so I must be a failure. I'm feeling unlovable today, so I must be unlovable. See? No, an Israelite is called to memorize verse 4. God has said that if you are one of his people, then this is who you are. You are saved because God has just chosen to love you by his mercy. So you're chosen and you're saved. So honestly, this is where it kind of comes down to it. Like, you don't have any authority to, divide, to define yourself otherwise. You have no right or authority to define yourself otherwise. But I'm not feeling verse 4 today, God. I'm not feeling it. Well, God says, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. I want you to stay at verse 4, though. I want you to stay at verse 4. Believe me, I know full well in my personal experience how feelings go up and down and all around and every which way, right? See, if my identity was based on the roller coaster of my emotions, anybody get that? Man, I would be sunk, right? But God shows here in verse 4 that God's people are not allowed to define their reality based on their feelings, but they're called to define their reality based on God's word. God's people are who God says they are. We are who God says we are. Who you say you are doesn't matter one bit compared to the God of the universe defining who you are. We are who God says we are. We are not the words that fly around in our heads, the lies that we're tempted to believe, and the self-talk that often just drags us down. No, no, no. God's people are called to define their identity based on who God says they are. So who are God's people in this context? Again, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You're saved. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I chose you and brought you to myself. So who am I? I am near to God. I'm not far from God. Who am I? I am near to God. God is not far from me. He's near me. That's who I am. If you're an Israelite reading this for the first time. Israelite, who are you? Oh, I'm saved by God's sheer mercy alone. I've been brought near to God because he's chosen and loves me. I am who God says I am. So back to the girl struggling with anorexia. She's not her feelings. That's not who she is. Health and discipleship for her is this war that is waged between who God says she is and who she says she is. You see? So what is she going to believe? And then most importantly, why? Based on what authority? Whose voice has the authority to define who we are? And this is why the exodus is so 
powerful as a foundation for Old Testament believers and where the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, is so powerful for New Testament believers. So how does this work? In the Old Testament, we see verse 4 that Israelites, God's people, are called to Look back. That's what it says. You have seen. Like, that's past tense. He's saying to them, you remember, you've seen. Remember what happened back then? You saw it. Past tense, you saw it, right? They're called to look back and see something miraculous and breathtakingly marvelous, right? The Exodus. And God is saying to them, in essence, you want to know why I have the authority to tell you who you are? It's because I love you, evidenced by the fact that I saved you. Remember that big evidence, the Exodus thing? That's the evidence that you can trust me. See, their identity, the foundation that that your identity can be rock solid, isn't just some wishy-washy, amorphous thing. It's rooted in a historical event. See how that can be rock solid? The event is the proof that we can listen to God and who he says we are and embrace that. Right? And the same thing for us in this room, but it's just a different event. God's people in the New Testament look back and have a different event. You see, if Jesus died for you and said that he died for you because he loves you, Romans 5, 8, and if Jesus rose from the dead like we celebrated last Sunday, doesn't that prove that he is God and worthy to be trusted? And if you look back, and if you trust these facts of history, wouldn't you want to trust also what he says about you? Shouldn't what he says about you be primary and not your feelings? See, you can trust what he says about you because you look back and trust in the historical event that is the evidence evidence that he's trustworthy. Our identity is rooted and built upon a historical event. It's true, factual. It actually happened, right? See how that's different than just, well, I'm just trying to figure out who I am and how I feel today and roller coaster and all that. My identity is rooted in the trust that I have based on a historical event. So you want to know who you are? Israelites, you look back to what God did in the Exodus. The church is called to look back at a cross and an empty tomb. And once that is settled... And we know where to look to be reminded who we are, right? And that God has the authority to tell me who I am because I trust what he did. He's proven that he's trustworthy based on this historical event. Now, what do we have to do? Well, we got to keep doing verse 4. What's God doing? He's reminding his people. We just got to keep reminding ourselves who we are daily. This is not just a one-time deal. This is a daily war of belief, right? So we don't go to our feelings. We go to God's word. And we keep going to God's word. We look back to be reminded of what he has done for us, and that tells us who we are. And then we move forward into the future. We cling to God's word to keep reminding us who we are. That's just a more complicated way of saying living by faith. That's how we live the Christian life. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, let's practice, all right? Let's practice. So ancient Israelite, Old Testament, reading this for the first time, where are they going to go to be reminded of who they are? 
They're going to go to Exodus 9.14. There it is. But New Testament believers, we can go. We've got more. We've got the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. We've got so many places we can go to be reminded about who God says we are. And, and my favorite passage is Ephesians 1. See, if you're struggling with identity, y'all got to get into Ephesians chapter 1, okay? So let's just practice how this works in real life. All right, let's look at Ephesians 1. It's on the screen. You can turn there if you want, starting in verse 3. I'm just going to rattle this off, okay? This is what Paul is writing to an ancient church. Again, another gathering of God's people. He's writing to them. And he's doing an Exodus 9, 4 kind of thing for God's people about 2,000 years ago in the Middle East in Ephesus. And he writes to me and says this. I want you to know your identity. I want you to know who you are. Okay? You're not, it's not your feelings. This is your identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has what? He's blessed us. So who are you? You are blessed. In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us. So who are you? I'm chosen. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Who are you? I'm holy and I'm blameless. I don't feel that way. Well, that doesn't matter. That's who God says you are if you're in Christ. Before him, in, in love, verse 5, he predestined us. So who are you? I, I've been predestined by God. That's who I am. He has predestined us for adoption. So who are you? I feel alone. You're not alone. You've been adopted. You have a father. That's not who you are. But I feel alone. That's okay. God says that's not who you are, and he has the authority to tell you who you are. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Who are you? I am someone who exists to praise God's grace. That's who I am. With which he has blessed us. Who are you? Oh, I'm blessed. There it is again. In the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. So who are you? I am redeemed. That's who I am. I have been redeemed. I've been saved. Through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our children. So who are you? Oh, you're forgiven. That's who you are. I am forgiven. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Believer, who are you? I am someone whose God has lavished his grace upon. That's who I am. I'm a recipient of lavish grace. In wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So believer, who are you? I'm a recipient of an inheritance. I feel so poor today, but you're not. God says you're not. You have an inheritance. Having been predestined, who are you? Oh, yeah, second time. I've been predestined of God. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might, again, be to the praise of his glory. Who are you? You exist. Your identity is someone who exists to praise God. That's who you are. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That just means that you are someone who God has, he, he, he owns you. And that's a good thing, okay? That's a good thing. God has you. Like another way of saying it, you've been bought with a price. Like you're not alone. He has you. That's who you are. 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You're not poor. You have an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it. Again, to the praise of his glory. Who are you? I am someone who exists to praise God. So who are you? Ancient Israel, Israelite says, verse 4 of Exodus 19, we have Ephesians 1. So who are you? If, you're lo- if you love Jesus and have repented of your sin and trust him and his resurrection for you, you are blessed, chosen, holy, blameless, predestined, adopted, exists, exists for his praise, blessed again, redeemed, forgiven. Grace has been lavished upon you. You have a rich inheritance and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. So so young woman with anorexia, no, Ephesians 1 says who you are. You are who God says you are. Person struggling because you feel like a failure in your business, you are not a business failure. You are who God says you are. Person struggling because you feel like a failure in parenting, you're not, as a primary, primary identity, a parenting failure. You are who God says you are. Struggling in relationships, you can't get this thing figured out, and there's tension all over the place. You are not a failure in relationship. You are who God says you are. Person wallowing in self-condemnation, you are not condemned. You are who God says you are. Now, all of those things point to issues that we got to work through, but we work through those issues out of a sense of an identity. We don't work through them in order to achieve an identity. Like God is just waiting around for you to get it all together, and then he will grant you your identity. That's not how it works. You come and receive the free gift of God's grace, and that settles your identity. And from there, we talk about issues in our life. And just as a side note, does this not land on you with such power in terms of why reading our Bible is so vitally important? Right? If I have to know who I am before I do anything in obedience to God, then whose voice am I going to listen to? Like, we've got thousands, millions of voices swirling around in our culture telling you and tempting you to believe all these crazy things about who you are. Like, you are your sexual desires. That's who you are. Wrong. That's not who God says you are. You are your success in business. Wrong. That's not who God says you are. You are ugly or beautiful based on your appearance. Wrong. That's not who God says you are. You're lovable because Oprah says so. No. That's not true. No, I am who God says I am. And God wants his people to have a settled conviction about who they are. We are who he says we are. So, so why would I spend so much time trying to hammer this into our brains? Because what Exodus 9, 19, 4 shows us is that once God's people have settled in their brain who they are, then and only then can they get to work on mission. Okay? So again, what did I say earlier? Being precedes doing. Identity precedes action. And this has always been the pattern that God desires for his people. It's never the opposite. The opposite is anti-Christianity. It's demonic. And tragically, so many of us think that this is what Christianity is. The opposite is not being precedes doing. It's I do, 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 do to achieve a sense of being. 
I work hard to clean myself up or I work hard to prove that I'm lovable. I work hard to prove that I'm a success or work hard to prove that you can be in relationship to me because then, then I'll have this identity. No, if our work is going to please God, we have to simply receive from him the fact that he saved us by grace alone, apart from works, so that I don't get any of the credit and he gets all the credit and all the glory for his grace. And then from that reality, he says and declares, once I receive that, that I am his child when I repent and believe in him. And then out of that realization that blows my mind and melts my heart to love him, it's from there that I stand. It's from there that I'm secure and I do acts of mercy and I do acts of love and sacrifice Nothing to achieve, just simply being who I am. This is who my father is, so I'm going to be like him. This is my, this is my love. My, my affection is placed on my father. So if my affection is placed there because he's blown my mind in the gospel, man, I just want to be like him. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So it's not slavish legalism, it's joy. You see the difference? When your identity is secure. And that's what we see in the next verse. Exodus 9, 19, 5. Look at what God says next. Now, therefore, right? So if verse 4 is settled, there's gonna have, that's going to produce something in your life. In light of the fact of verse 4, therefore, there's an implication, Right? Therefore, the word therefore always means that now in light of something else, something is going to happen. I love my wife, therefore I'm going to buy her flowers. I love my wife, therefore we're going to have a sweet vacation to celebrate our 20th anniversary in like two days. Can't wait. You know what I'm saying? So there, you see how therefore functions? It's really, really important. Look at, look at verse 5. Now therefore... Meaning, keep verse 4 in mind. Keep verse 4 in mind. What did verse 4 say? Okay, got it. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So all that means is, my people, are you going to listen? Are you going to have a soft heart and are you going to listen? That's what that means. You, sh- you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. And what that means is you're going to stand out among every other nation in the world. For all the earth is mine, so I have the authority to do whatever I want. Okay, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. This is the mission. This is what you're called to do in light of verse 4. Once your identity is settled, now you're going to go to work on mission. Not work to achieve anything. Work that flows out of love. So, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so let's, let's follow the logic here. Israel, God's people, this is your mission. Your identity, verse 4, precedes the action of verse 5 and 6. Identity precedes mission. So now that that identity is settled, we're, we can be on mission. What's the mission? Know who you are and be like it. Just simply be who you are. Be who you are and live like it. And the idea is summarized in that short little phrase, kingdom of priests. See that there? Kingdom of priests. What does that mean? What's a priest? priest is a, a mediator, a go-between, an advocate, right? So what is a kingdom of priests? 
God is saying, if you know who you are and you're willing to live like it, if you're willing to listen to what I say and do it because you know that I'm your Father who saved you and loves you, if you're willing to be who you are, then you will function as my people who will lead, kind of lead the way to having a relationship with God. Leading the whole world to figure out what it means to love God, to worship God, to give glory to God, to know God. See, God is on a mission from beginning to end of the Bible to get glory for himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And he always has a people that he uses to bring this about. And so he's saying his chosen, saved, verse 4, identity secure people, if you know who you are and you will follow me, and when you follow me, everyone around the world is going to stand up and take notice of how amazing this God is. They will come along, the nations are going to come to you and say, man, tell me more about this Yahweh God of yours. I see this peace, the, the, the Old Testament calls it shalom and beauty of your community. Man, we're over here in this nation, we don't have that. How can we have that? Because we see it in you guys. I see that your fellowship with each other is not, is not chaos, but it's love. Other nations are going to look in and say, how can we have some of that? And what, what, what he's saying is, when this type of thing happens, God gets the glory. Because it makes him look really good. And then we get to talk about, talk to all these nations, all these people about him. And that satisfies us as we experience the blessing of living in the best way possible. Because God is the one who's the author of this way of life. You see? I had just a sliver of this experience last week. So I invited one of my unbelieving neighbors to Easter last Sunday. And it's really interesting when you, when you sit next to someone who you know, never been in an evangelical church in his life. Um, but, you know, soft heart, came as a learner and just came. It was awesome. And I'm, I'm looking at this through, you know, his eyes as I'm sitting there like, man, I'm, what is he thinking? Like, you know, this is kind of, kind of weird if you've never experienced this before, Right. But he just said to me after the service, and, you know, he didn't have the Christianese, which you would expect, right? But he said, he says, I really appreciated being here today. I, I felt a really good energy, right? And I think that's translation for, I sense something different about you guys. I sense something different that's going on in this room that I'm not, like, running and screaming in fear. Like, there's a good energy here, right? And that's just a sliver of what God is saying to his people here. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, I don't know if he'll become a Christian. I pray that he will. But, but, but that's a sliver of what's going on here. The, people get around us. They can sense something's different here. Something's different here. And a lot of those people are going to want to know, tell me more about this. Because I don't experience this in my family. I don't experience this at the workplace. I don't experience this in my neighborhood. Can you tell me more about what this is all about? So, so this is the mission that God has given to his people back then and, and us today. And that's the turning point now that we have in the book of Exodus. 1 through 18 was all about God saving his people. And now that their identity as saved people is settled, now they're called to live like it. And when they live like it, it's really powerful. And that's where we turn next. That's where we turn next in the book of Exodus, next 10 weeks. How are God's identity secure people supposed to live? We're glad you asked. God's about to tell them, and he summarizes it in something called the Ten Commandments. 
in the rest of Exodus 19, God prepares his people to receive his holy word about what the best life possible looks like. What does it mean for God's people to be a city on the hill? And that's where we're going to be in the next 10 weeks. And, And when they live like it in word and deed, the whole world will stand up and take notice and this will be the means by which we di- disciples are made, churches are planted. God gets massive glory for himself through us. Doesn't that sound exciting? I can't wait. Let's pray. God, would you help us? Would you help us? We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that we can have um, a secure identity when we just simply receive the gift of your grace, not by works, but just as a, as a child receives a gift on Christmas morning that they didn't work for, Lord, may we receive you and may that just cause us to burst with joy and deepen our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.